Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. So we're going to wrap that up and we're going to read the last portion of scripture today. But before I do that, let me just give you a quick note of background about what's going on um, before we read this scripture. So the Lord has caused a three and a half year drought in the nation of Israel due to the wickedness, evil and disobedience of their leaders and people. And Elijah has just now completed this epic showdown. And if you haven't read it in 1 Kings 17 and 18, um, I encourage you to go back and do it because it's one of the more dramatic stories of the Old Testament. And, you know, they build, uh, Elijah builds an altar with a sacrifice on it on one side and the the false prophets of Baal build an altar on another side with the sacrifice and they both call out to their respective gods, Elijah calling out to Yahweh and um, these false prophets calling out to the false god of Baal to light the fire to prove which one is God to the people of Israel. Well, he prays and uh, Elijah prays and the fire falls immediately on his altar and the prophets of Baal, nothing happens, right? Like no kidding. Shocker. So the people, after seeing that and after having this three and a half years of no rain, they begin to understand we have given our hearts, we've given ourselves to things that are opposite of God. And so they return their hearts to the Lord. They return their hearts to the Lord so intensely that Elijah has them capture the prophets of Baal who've been dancing around this uh, uh, um, sacrifice that hasn't caught on fire for hours and hours and hours. Um, and they take them down to Kishnan Valley and they actually put them to death. So King Ahab has watched this entire thing go down. The most wicked king in all of Israel's history, he watches the fire fall when Elijah prays. He watches the prophets of Baal fail. He watches them cut themselves over and over. And literally, um, some scholars tell us and historians that they would take the blood of the sacrifice and rub it all over themselves, thinking that was going to do something. It didn't. And it was just nasty. And so he's watched the failure of his God, of his belief system, of his prophets. He's watched these things fail miserably. He's watched his prophets be put to death. And now here comes Elijah back up the hill. You just killed 450 people. What do you look like? You probably sweaty. You probably got dirt and blood all over you. You dragging that sword up the hill. We have no idea what's going on through Ahab's mind, but that picture for me, if I'm sitting in Ahab's seat, I'm going, hey man, how are you? You guys don't touch me. Are you all right? You know, like I'm afraid for my own life. This is where we pick up the story in 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 41 through 45. Let's read it here together. Then Elijah said to Ahab, Go get something to eat and drink, for I hear a mighty rainstorm coming. So Ahab went to eat and drink. But Elijah climbed on top of Mount Carmel and bowed low to the ground and prayed with his face between his knees. Then he said to his servant, Go and look out toward the sea. The servant went and looked, then returned to Elijah and said, I didn't see anything. Seven times Elijah told him to go and look. But finally on the seventh time, his servant told him, I saw a little cloud about the size of a man's hand rising from the sea. Then Elijah shouted, hurry to Ahab and tell him, climb in your chariot and go back home. If you don't hurry, the rain will stop you. 
and soon the sky was black with clouds. A heavy wind brought a terrific rainstorm, and Ahab quickly, or left quickly for Jezreel, which is a nearby city. There's three things that I want to highlight from this passage of Scripture as we wrap up our series, Doing Things God's Way. And so number one in your notes, doing things God's way requires faithfulness. Requires faithfulness. So up until this point, we have really focused on three main people in this series. Obviously, Elijah, but we've also focused on the widow who made him something to eat before she made it for her and her, uh, her son. And we've also focused last week on Obadiah for a little bit, who was the, um, he, he, he worked for Ahab in, in his palace. He was a representative of Ahab to the nation, but he was still in that evil, wicked time frame devoted to God. So I want us to quickly focus on a fourth person in this series. And this next line there in your notes, it's the servant. The servant. And more specifically, it's Elijah's servant. The interesting thing about this is that we don't have any record of the last three and a half years of this servant being with Elijah. There's no record that he went there to be with him when he talked to Ahab. There's no record that he went there um, to, um, to, to hide in the, by the Kareth brook. There's no record that he went to the widow's house and stayed there for the rest of the duration of the drought. There's no record that the servant went and helped him um, during this battle with the, um, with the prophets of Baal. There's no record of a servant until right now. And a lot of scholars and historians believe the reason for that is because once Ahab realized, oh my goodness, Elijah's God is the God, this is the one that's kind of won this battle, he took one of his own servants and said, hey, go with him, follow him, and do what he says. This servant has watched all of the wickedness in Israel for the last three and a half years. He's watched the drought He's seen how the drought has impacted the, 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 the crops and the livestock and how the impact it's had on their life. He's seen all of the same things we just described that Ahab had seen. And now, after all of that, he's realizing, man, what Elijah says is about to happen. It's about to happen. So he follows him up Mount Carmel. And then Elijah sends him to look over the sea. The sea he's talking about is the Mediterranean Sea. And report back what he observes. This guy has followed the directions of the king. He's followed the directions of Elijah. He's followed the directions to a T. And he's looked out over the Mediterranean Sea, knowing that everything Elijah is saying has come to pass. Every time he has prayed to God, it has come to pass. And he goes to the edge of the sea and sees nothing. He sees nothing. I imagine that had to be a moment of shock and confusion for this, for this servant to go back to Elijah and go, man, everything he's prayed for and everything that he's been about and everything he's asked for, that prayer has been answered. And he goes back to Elijah, who he finds laying on the ground, praying. He says, Elijah, I don't see anything. And Elijah says, go back and look again. 
he goes back and looks again. And I'm thinking about my own self. Like if I was told to look again, I'd be like, oh, I must have just been a little bit early for this one. And go sit out and look over the sea. And for a second time, he sees nothing. There's not a stiff wind. There's not a little cloud out in the distance. It is barren skies like he has seen. It is calm seas like he knows for the last three and a half years. And he goes back to Elijah again and says, I don't see anything. Seven times, Elijah sends him back to look And every single time, there's nothing. As I read this passage, I started to look back over my own life. It's funny how Scripture does that. We're talking about something that happened thousands of years ago, and there's a a spark in my own heart to look back on my, my life and go, man, how many times have I obeyed the Lord? and done what He has said, done what He has directed me to do, done what He has laid out in front of me, followed the path that He has pointed the way that He's shown me, how many times have I done that knowing that there is a promise of God that He would do something to provide for His children, provide for me as His child? How many times have I obeyed all of the things He said and went and looked over the ridge to see, is that promise coming and saw nothing? I wrote a question in your, in your notes. Have we ever looked out over the horizon of our life expecting to see something moving our direction or the smallest of indicators that the promise of the Lord to us would be realized and thought, I don't see anything. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you have done that? You have followed the Lord. You're waiting for the next step. I started this job. I quit this job. I obeyed here. I, I didn't obey. I, I, I rejected the thing I was supposed to reject here. I prayed again and again and again. I've done everything that you've said. I've seen you move. I know you're real in my life. But when it comes to this thing that I have been asking you for and believing for and knowing that you promised would come, I'm sitting here wondering, where is it? I don't see anything. If you haven't experienced that yet, as a true believer in Christ, you will. And if you have experienced that, you understand the loneliness and confusion and abandonment in that moment that would cross your mind and heart, even if it was only for a second. These are the times for us to remember two words, definitions. And I've written them there in your notes. The first one is faithfulness. The definition of faithfulness is steadfast in affection or allegiance, firm in adherence to promises or in observance of duty, given with strong assurance, true to the facts. That is the definition of faithfulness. But we remain faithful based on a trust that we have with God. So here's what trust is. Assured reliance on the character, ability, strength, or truth of someone or something. I'm going to read that one again. Assured reliance on the character, ability, strength, or truth of someone or something. So let me ask you questions. Four questions. The next line here in your notes. Are we confident in the perfect character of God? 
are we confident in the unlimited ability of God? Are we confident in the all-powerful strength of God? Are we confident in the faultless truth about God? If we are, then that is the definition of trust. I'm not saying that these have never wavered at any point in time in your life, but if you resolve the majority of the time to, I am trusting in his character, his ability, his strength, and truth, then we have met the literal definition of trusting in God. And if we trust him, I'm going to encourage you to follow the lead of Elijah's faithful servant and keep looking. Keep looking for his promise. Keep looking for his return. Keep looking for his movement. Keep looking for the things that he puts in motion. Because the next line in your notes is something I do not want you to forget. There is nothing more beautiful or precise than the Almighty God in motion. There is nothing more beautiful or precise than the almighty God in motion. When he moves, it's powerful. When he moves, it's perfect. When he moves, it's appropriate. When he moves, it is to accomplish the ultimate good. Going our own direction and doing things our way means that I have some idea that I'm in control of it. I can direct it how it needs to be. If something goes wrong, I can jump in and try to fix it. And that, my friends, is an illusion, especially for people who call themselves children of God. Because to do things God's way requires faithfulness even when you look out over the horizon and see nothing moving on your behalf. When there is nothing on the horizon, remain faithful. When we can't see anything brewing, remain faithful. When we don't see the promise that God made us lining out even from a long distance. I can't even creatively put a scenario in my head to create on my own that would look like he's moving. There is nothing, my friends. Remain faithful because doing things his way requires it. Number two, doing things God's way requires prayer. Doing things God's way requires prayer. I find it really interesting in this passage that Elijah, after he comes back from putting all the false prophets to death, walks back up to Ahab and says, Hey man, go get something to eat and prepare yourself because I hear rain coming. But there wasn't any rain. There was no rain, yet there was something inside of him that knew it's coming. It may not be today. It may not be tomorrow. It may not be next month. But I have watched God's purpose be fulfilled. His people have turned their hearts back to him. And that's the reason he turned all of the, the water off in the first place. He turned the rain off. I am confident that he is going to answer this prayer. He is going to return the rain to his people. 
But even though God had already promised the rain, Elijah must ask for it. He must ask for it. The fire didn't appear out of the sky for, with just on its own. Elijah asked for it. The rain didn't just pop up. Elijah went to the top of Mount Carmel and prayed for it. Why in the world is that? Why do we need to do that? I mean, why do we need to pray? If it's going to be his promise, he's going to fulfill it anyway. Because Elijah bowing before the Lord in prayer is showing his heart of humility. Elijah's laying on the ground after this massive miracle has taken place, this dramatic scene that the, uh, the, these people that have led the God's um, own children heart away from him have now been put to death. He's exhausted and standing there on top of that mountain and throws himself on the ground and puts his head so far down between his knees that it touches the ground. He puts his face on the ground because even though he's asking and he knows that he needs to make the request of God he knows that it is only God who can fulfill the request I am asking you to do this I believe that you have done this I have been faithful throughout this entire thing I trust what you said but still he has to move and I know at the end of all of my obedience it has nothing to do with my power or my endurance it has everything to do with God being the God who has the character to honor his word we need to continually pray even though there may be a delay in God's response even though there may be a delay in God's response. Elijah, the man who has seen unbelievable, unexplainable miracles, prays and asks God for rain, and no rain comes. He continues over and over and over even when he hears the report from the person who is speaking to him to give him validation that something's coming. They look at him and he hears the, the people around him say, there's nothing coming. And he prays anyway. Go back and look again. He prays. I know you're praying, bro, but nothing's coming. Go back and look again. I'm still praying. Hey man, I've, bon- I've been back there four different times and I see the same thing last time as I saw the first time. Ain't nothing happening. Go back and look again. I'm praying and talking to God. I understand that this requires not just faithfulness, but also prayer. And as I read that, I was reminded of the consistency of God. See, we're, we're talking about this, this um, scenario, this real-life, actual scenario that happens in the Old Testament verse of 1 Kings. And Elijah has to continue to pray and ask God for the fulfillment of his promise. But in the New Testament, it reminded him, that, that scenario reminded me of something in the New Testament where Jesus was talking to his disciples and his followers in Luke chapter 18, 1-8, and he says this, One day Jesus told his disciples a story 
to show that they should always pray and never give up. There was a judge in a certain city, he said, who neither feared God nor cared about people. A widow of that city came to him repeatedly saying, Give me justice in this dispute with my enemy. The judge ignored her for a while, but finally he said to himself, I don't fear God or care about people. Bad qualities for a judge, by the way. I don't fear God or care about people, but this woman is driving me crazy. I'm going to see that she gets, the, um, gets justice because she's wearing me out with her constant requests. Then the Lord said, learn a lesson from this unjust judge. Even he rendered a just decision in the end. So don't you think that God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will grant justice to them quickly. But when the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on the earth who have faith? As I was studying the scripture, some people would, would argue that, oh, this is only about justice. This is only about asking God for justice in a certain scenario, and that justice would be done. But the very first line of the scripture kind of destroys that argument for me. One day, Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. It doesn't say you should always pray for justice, always pray for anything specific. It just says always pray and never give up. Now let's stop right here and clarify something. The next line in your notes will, will make it pretty clear for us. Prayer is not bargaining with God or demanding that he do something for us. <clears throat> Prayer is not bargaining with God or demanding that he do something for us. When you talk to people about continue to pray, continue to, to ask God, continue to ask him over and over and over again, there are many people who look at that like, oh, I'm just going to keep asking. doesn't matter what it was, I'm just going to keep asking. It could be a crazy thing, but I'm going to keep asking over and over and over, and it doesn't come to pass, and they get frustrated and say, God is not answering me. A.W. Tozer addresses this mentality pretty clearly in his, um, his devotional book, Mornings with Tozer. And he wrote a quote that I have in your notes there for you. It says this, Prayer among evangelical Christians is always in danger of degenerating into a glorified quote-unquote gold rush. But God is not a magical genie who answers our every wish, nor is he a weak God who can be controlled by our prayers. We cannot pray so much for something that will that is outside of God's plan for us or will destroy us in the end so much that we twist God's arm to go, ah, finally, just give it to him. He has a greater vision and insight than we do. Prayer is asking for God's ultimate will to be accomplished. Even in the Lord's Prayer, what does he say? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be their na your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our day, our, today our daily bread, provision. Forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. Allow there to be grace in us. Lead us not into temptation or deliver us from evil, for thine is the power, the kingdom, and the glory forever. Amen. There's nothing in there that says, 
continually hound God for material things that will not matter in the end. And if that isn't clear enough, James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3 says this. You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, so you, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And most people pause and stop right there before the Scripture is over. I don't have because I don't ask. If it ended right there and didn't continue on to clarify anything, the, the nonsense that I heard as a child growing up in church would be true, and it's not. I heard many times people say, there's a room in heaven that's got your name on it, brother. And it is full of stuff, full of stuff that you could have had but didn't ask for. And when you get there, you're going to go up there and you're going to open that door and thought, oh my goodness, I could have had all this stuff on earth. And, they, and God would have said, yep, but you never asked. And walk into heaven with disappointment. People preach that, and maybe it's just in the, the, the weird South where I grew up, right? But that was part of their thing because they said, you don't have it because you don't ask for it. And there's a period there, except it continues on. You don't, ha- you don't get it because, um, and uh, you don't have what you want because you don't ask for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. And that word pleasure um, is defined in several other translations as selfish lust. I'm not saying that you could go and just ask God for all crazy stuff that you want so you feel good about your physical self and your materialistic wealth and how you look towards everybody else. That is nonsense according to Scripture. I noticed that um, when Elijah prayed for fire, the answer was immediate. But when he prayed for rain, there was a delay. The Lord took time to answer one prayer and immediately answered a different one. Why? His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And what could have taken just a moment in one instance may need to take longer in the next. See that massive hit of fire? Is there, is, could God have, could God have a, a just allowed rain to pour out of the sky on a clear day? Sure. He could have done that. He's got him he do whatever he wants. But he took the time to orchestrate such a torrential downpour that historians tell us that the, the verbiage that's used in this particular passage means it, that, that the rain was going to rise to flood levels. 
There wasn't a sun shower. It wasn't a sprinkle, like I'll give you a little bit now and then give you a little bit tomorrow and then a little bit later and just enough for your crops. God is now giving his people what has been withheld from them because their hearts have returned to him. And he's not just given a little. He is flooding the place out. He told his servant, go and tell Ahab to move, not walk, not run, get on your chariot and go as fast as you can or what God is bringing is going to overrun you. That's how heavy of a rain was coming. God was not about to hold back. He was about to say, when your hearts return to me and when I show up with the promise, it is torrential. It is overwhelming because I am still God when I give the promise. Keep praying. Keep trusting. Because doing things God's way requires prayer. Last but not least, <clears throat> number three, doing things God's way finds satisfaction and obedience. Finds satisfaction and obedience. Have you guys ever heard of the term ambulance chaser? If you don't know what that means, an ambulance chaser is someone who, who kind of um, uh, creates traffic accidents that are smaller accidents. They try to make it look like someone else caused the accident by the way they drove or trying to find a technicality to cause a wreck. And then they just exaggerate their wound, their injury. It could have been a fender bender. Oh, my neck. You know, and they go to the hospital and they sue the person and the insurance company. And they try to make, you know, tons of money, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars by basically being a fraud. This is what an ambulance chaser is. There are many people um, who call themselves believers in Christ who I would not call ambulance chasers. I would call blessing chasers. I got to go to this conference and hear this guy speak and have this lady pray for me or this person give me a prophetic word or this somebody do something or this person do this and I'm going to go and I'm going to find the magic recipe and it's going to bam, my prayer is going to be answered. It's, God is going to use it this way. He just wants me to find a different way to go get it. And I will transparently and embarrassingly cop to doing this. A couple years after we moved back here to Phoenix from Texas, I was working in a job I hated and didn't want to be there and wanted to be in ministry and wanted God to open a door for us. And so I heard about a place who, was, um, who prayed for people like on off nights. It was like a Thursday night. It wasn't like a weekend service. It was like a Tuesday or Thursday night or something. I don't remember what exactly nights. I'll just pick Thursday for the purpose of explaining the story. So I heard it and then um, uh, Nina and Kobe were out somewhere doing something. I was by myself and I'm like, you know what? I hadn't been able to get God to give me an answer. I hadn't been able to God to get me out of this job and get me back into ministry somewhere. I'm going to go over there and I'm going to go get myself somebody to pray for me. Because I know these people pray during the week and I'm going to go over there and see if these guys got anything for me. Somebody's going to have a word for me, right? Like I'm going to go over there and just go get it. So I sat through the service, which was mildly torture. And, um, and I was just sitting there and I was like, okay. And then at the end, they're like, hey, every Thursday night we pray for people and we pray that God would kind of speak to um, you through us. If he has something he wants to say, we pray for everybody. So come forward. So 
I uh, went and got in the line. And it just so happened that I was slow that night, and I was in the back of the line. And every single person, there were more than a dozen people in my aisle, went and got prayed for, and the next person would go, and then that person would be done, the next person would go, and just kind of like single file. And it got to me, and I stood there, and I'm waiting for the person to go, come, to get prayed for. And I went, and nobody motioned for me to come. And so I kind of like moved a little bit. Maybe they didn't see me in the dark or whatever, you know, like, yes, Lord, or, you know, something. And, you know, give them a little, hey, I'm still over here, you know. And uh, at the very end, no one would call my name. And at the very end, the, the guy who was leading the service stood up and said, anybody who hasn't been prayed for, now's the time. And so I went, right here, bro. And then the guy in the front who had looked at me a couple times, eyeballed me, but never, never, uh, never called me over, looked at me, and then went, come here. I was like, here we go, bro. Yeah. So I go there and I stand in front of him. He's like, what do you need? And so I spilled out my whole thing and about what I was waiting for. And he just looked right at me and said, God's already told you what to do. Have a good day. And I sat there and went, this is not what what you were supposed to be doing. I thought you were supposed to be praying and giving me some prophetic word and telling me what the next step is. This is not how this is supposed to go, man. But here he was telling me, you already know what to do. Um, Have a good day. I went to that service for nothing. I could have caught the Thursday night football game. I sat there and endured that whole thing for nothing. So I got in the car and as I'm driving home, I'm kind of complaining to God out loud. I'm just in the car by myself. And I'm out. I'm going, God, well, this kind of stinks, man. I came over here to hear from you. And now what we're supposed to be doing? Trying to hear your voice? Trying to hear things from you? Isn't that what's supposed to be happening? And before I could get the full complaint out of my mouth, I felt very sternly and really in this calm, quiet, but loud, I can't explain that, portion in my heart. Almost as the Spirit of God tell me, don't try to twist my arm to get what you want ever again. Is that kind of what I did? Yes, that's what you did. I've already told you what's going to happen. Stay the course. People chase all the types of things. I want, a, I want a blessing chaser. But if that is the basis of our relationship with God, we're no different than the ambulance chasers. Ultimately, our relationship is a fraud. We're frauds. People all the time like, oh, I just got to give up cursing and smoking and drinking and and uh, watching bad things and don't, you know, if I'm single, not touch, you know, you know, girls and their naughty parts and then we're all good, right? Like I get like a whole bunch of money and a whole bunch of feeling a moral superiority. I'll give that up just so I can, you know, have all this stuff on the back end. A lot of people choose to try to pursue God because of that. And ultimately fail. And some of them fall away from the faith because I thought I was going to get everything I want. That's not how doing things God's way works. Does serving Jesus, does serving God have um, uh, earthly benefits? Yes. Can God bless you to have a whole bunch of money to go do something to help somebody? Can he, can he help you to get a home? 
that you weren't planning on and didn't look at and close in record time so you can start a church a year and a half later after you buy the home? Yes, he can do that. Can he do? Can he orchestrate any physical scenario? Yes, but his physical scenario is not so you can look good. It's so his will can be accomplished. But the greater things that he does are things that you cannot touch or feel. Next four lines in your notes are pretty pretty simple. Does Jesus bring earthly benefits? Yes, he is the Prince of Peace. He is our provider. He is our comfort. He is our Savior. He's the Prince of Peace. He is our provider. He is our comfort. He is our Savior. I can't tell you how many people who have achieved great monetary wealth by the earth by, by earthly standards and worldly standards, have said to me or people that I know, I've done all of this and I remain miserable. I got all the success that people could actually want, write down on a piece of paper. I've checked them all off, but I have no peace. There is no comfort. I am lost. I have no Savior. So let me ask us a question. I don't want you to answer. I just want you to stick it in the back of your head that you can ask yourself later tonight or even later this week, and it's this. What if the only payoff for our obedience to God's will, or what if the only payoff for our obedience was God's will being accomplished on the earth? What if the only payoff to going and speaking to the king, this crazy thing. There's not going to be any rain and hiding out by the, the Kareth Brook and going into a city where I don't know anybody and meeting someone who makes food for me and, and, and I wait it out till this time is done and I go set up this altar and challenge the false prophets of Baal. What if there was no payoff other than his will was done in the earth? What if he didn't break me off a little something? What if there was no financial reward or blessing or something? Would I still remain faithful? Would I still pray? And my question is, would I still remain satisfied? When you read this story, you can easily be misled into thinking the whole point of this story is the rain. I want the rain. I want the blessing. I want this to flood. I want it to, you know, um, I, want it to, I want to give $100 and I get back $100 million. That's what the floodgates look like to me. I want to do this. I want all of this stuff. I want to pursue the rain. But ultimately, if you have really served God, if you have really obeyed him with the heart of, I don't care if I get anything, I want to serve you because I love you. There, uh, there's a depth of love inside of me that cannot be explained. All I want is what you want. When it rains, it only deepens your affection for God. When you are doing things God's way, there is a satisfaction that is only found when you obey.
Most people look at the rain and be like, oh, the blessing's coming back. The crops are coming back. The livestock's going to have water. I want the rain. I want the rain. I want the rain. But the rain is actually a sign of redemption and salvation. It's the last line there in your notes. Think about it. The rain was a sign of redemption that had happened in the hearts of the people and salvation. They would not starve to death. It was a requirement. The water was a requirement. I want the blessings. I want all this stuff. I want, I want to get all this stuff. God, give me, give me, give me. Except none of that stuff brings satisfaction the way honest obedience does. See, without the water, there was no more food, no more livestock, no more critical element necessary for the children of Israel's survival. I don't see here anywhere in Scripture that Elijah starts dancing in the rain. Yes, this is great. The rain is back. Nope. There was a satisfaction that happened to him in his obedience to God. Hebrews tells us that there are um, pillars of the faith in the Old Testament who God promised them certain things and they believed it all the way until they died and never saw it and remained faithful. When we get to heaven, God Almighty is going to look at us and say, depart from me, I never knew you. Or He's going to say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. How can he call me good? I'm not good because his son's blood covers my sin. That's how I get to be good in his eyes. And I need to remain faithful. And he gives us a cheat code in the Spirit of God that empowers us with strength that we don't have to open a way of escape when there is temptation in us. And he is giving us the right way. He's giving us an open door to remain faithful. There's a great satisfaction and obedience. So as we wrap up the message and we bring the series to a close, now I want to address just a couple of things very quickly. There are people who are in this room or will hear this message who have been in the midst of the drought for what seems like ever. You have been obedient to God during this time frame. You have followed what He said. You have been in His Word. And you have walked down the entire road that He has led you to. And now there's a question. I don't see anything coming. I'm here to remind you of the faithfulness, the character, and the power of Almighty God. He is good. He is the essence of goodness. He is not cruel. And He does not leave His children hanging. If He gave you a promise, my friend, the rain is coming. 
Matt, I don't see anything on the horizon. Right. But ask God to stir something in you. God, can you just let me know that it's coming? I have prayed. I have been faithful. I have pushed through. And I don't hear it, God, but right here, it doesn't make any sense. I can, oh, I can just sense your Holy Spirit stirring something in me that's telling me, hey, this is about to be done. The rain is coming. There's another group of people who you have, you're, you're at the beginning or the middle of some scenario where you're wondering, man, why would God tell me to even do this? You're at the beginning of this process and you're, gonna, and you're going to have questions in the middle of it. Do I do things God's way? Do I follow all these crazy instructions that don't seem to make sense? Or am I going to go do my own thing? I am encouraging you now to follow past the point of your emotion and have a decision of the will to do things God's way. Because if you follow Him and He has made you a promise, the rain will come. I don't want you to, to um, get emotional at this moment or glamorize and think, oh man, yes, tomorrow. It'll be here tomorrow. Probably not. It may, but probably not. But the faithfulness and character of our God shows us throughout Scripture and in this passage we've been in for the last four weeks that God keeps His Word. If you see the rain fall on someone else, I encourage you not to look at them and be jealous or feel discouraged about where you are. Rejoice that the faithfulness of God is revealed and on display. And if you are, if in the near future you're someone who starts to feel the drops of rain on your face and the promise of God is starting to take shape and you see it building, pray for those that you know who are not yet seeing the fulfillment of their promise that they will endure to the end. My mind wants to stand here and shout and yell and holler, the rain's coming, the rain's coming, the rain's coming. But there's something inside of me that can't get overly emotional about the rain. Because rain or not, God's good. His promise, I see it fulfilled or not. He's good. I trust Him not because of what He can do for me. I trust Him because He is good. I trust Him because He is love. I trust Him because when He says it, it's already done. We're just waiting to see it here. So if you're somebody who's waiting on the promise, you're waiting on the rain. You're waiting for the fulfillment of what God has laid out in front of you to happen. There's a clear choice. We can abandon the plan and do things our way. Or we can stay faithful. We can pray continually. We can find our satisfaction in the heart of obedience. And we can do things His way.